All right. Good morning, Riverview. All right. It's good to be with you. My name is Tony. I am one of the pastors here. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah. All right. Show of hands. Who is cheering for the 49ers tonight? No. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Who is cheering for the Kansas City Chiefs slash Taylor Swift? Yeah. Okay. A few of us. And now who, are, who in this room is refusing to cheer because the Lions aren't there? Yeah. All right. That's most of us. Yes. All right. Or the commercials, right? That, you can always cheer for the commercials. Um, but no, my wife, Danielle, and I, we are in a Riv community here at, uh, at Riverview. And we actually watched uh, the Lions beat the Buccaneers a few weeks ago with our Riv community. It was a great time. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, in our Riv community, it's something that's great for us in our marriage and just in our walk with the Lord. Because every, every other week or so, <clears throat> what we do is we just gather together with other believers from the Westside venue. And we share food together. We open the scripture together. Uh, we pray for one another. And something that we do every time in our Riv community is one person from the group, uh, they will always take five to seven minutes to share their faith story with everybody. And what they do is they just first, they talk about what their life was like before they became a Christian. They talk about who shared the gospel with them or maybe how they came to faith. And then they shared how God has just changed their life. How they are a different person now than they were before they were a Christian. And this is actually one of my favorite parts of our Riv community every time we get together. And as I've heard these faith stories over the past couple of months, there's, there's this common thread that I've found in pretty much every story, every person that's shared, and it's this. I, every single person has shared how another person has been very involved in them becoming a Christian. I've yet to hear someone's story where they're like, you know, I was just kind of going about my life, and I just figured out the Christian thing on my own. Just kind of did it. It was, you know, that's on me, Right? Whether it was a leader or a family member or a friend, most of us, we can look back at someone in our life who loved us enough to talk about Jesus with us. Maybe it was through an invitation or it was just through someone sharing the gospel with us over coffee. Or maybe it was us just seeing Christianity in the life of another person that was attractive to us. For me, that happened when I was in high school. I had a youth ministry leader who would just come around our, our high school just to, to, to befriend us. He, he was a young life leader. He came to our soccer practices. He came to our games. He was just in our life. And through spending time with him and seeing him live his life, the, the message of Christianity, it became attractive to me. Because it wasn't only the things that he said, but it was how his life reflected the things he said. But on the flip side of that, it was really interesting. There were others in my life, friends that I had, that got to know, <clears throat> excuse me, that got to know my youth ministry leader, but he had the opposite impact on them. They weren't attracted to the faith. Even though they experienced the same guy, same words, same invitations, they were led the opposite direction. They weren't interested. They didn't want to follow Jesus. We're walking through this book of 2 Corinthians in this series that we're calling Cruciformed. And in this book, what we're seeing is how our life, we as followers of Jesus, we live a cruciformed life. Lives that are shaped and molded by the cross, the gospel of Jesus, our identity in Christ. And in this part of the letter that we're going to be in, that we just heard the scripture read, we're going to see Paul start unpacking this idea of the impact our lives have on other people, regardless of whether we know it or not. In six verses, we're going to see two vivid pictures that Paul shares with us about the ways that God makes himself known in the world. 
And a question that's going to be answered for us as we look at this passage is this. How does God use us in that work of others knowing and enjoying him? So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. We're going to be verses 12 through 17. Or if you have your journal, if you have this, hold it up. Anyone? Yeah. Yes. We got a lot of people. This is fantastic. So this is a journal that we have made. It's free. You can grab one if you don't have one. But this goes through all of the passages that we're going to be in for this entire series over the next few months. So if you have this, page 24 is where we're going to be today. Page 24. We're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says this, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and I left for Macedonia. So if you have read any of Paul's other letters in the New Testament, you may notice that he does this every once in a while. He will share status updates of kind of what was happening in his life at certain points or where he was. And these really act as transitions between the meteor content of his letters. But these are actually really helpful portions of Scripture. We read them sometimes and we just skip over them. We're like, well, who cares, right? But it is really helpful because it actually helps us remember where Paul was during what times. We're actually able to piece together all of Paul's missionary travels through passages like this. So at one point, he was in the city of Ephesus. We have a map here. We have a city. He was in the city of Ephesus down there in the lower right-hand corner, and he went up to Troas, okay? And he was going to meet someone there named Titus. Titus was a friend of Paul's. He was a fellow brother in Christ. He had become a Christian through Paul's ministry, and he started traveling with Paul. Now, Titus, at some point, was commissioned by Paul to deliver a letter to the Corinthians. This was a tearful letter that we see from other texts. But then they were going to meet up in Troas. But for some reason, Titus never showed up. Now, today, we may struggle to understand why that's a big deal, right? We make plans with people, and they change, right? Someone just, hey, they didn't make it, or they were late, or anything like that. But Titus not showing up in this time, in this place, it could have meant the worst. Because if you've, if you've read any of the book of Acts or other places, you know Paul and his friends in ministry, they were persecuted on a regular basis. Almost everywhere they went, they were beaten. They were spoken ill of. They were run out of the city. They were not welcome. And if they were separated, they didn't have a means of communicating with one another. They, they weren't like, hey, just got beaten up. I'll be there in a day or two. Right? You couldn't text that. <laughs> All right? Back then, if someone didn't show up when they said they were, you just thought the worst. Because that person, to communicate, they would have had to send a handwritten letter through a person many miles. So when Titus doesn't show up, Paul is anxious. He has no rest in his spirit. And we see that's why he actually went up to Macedonia. But we see a pivot in what he writes next. Even though he had this anxiety, he talks about being thankful. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. Even as Paul dealt with the uncertainty of that situation, he was still able to look at the work in his life God was doing with thankfulness. And this is grounded in what Paul writes here in what he calls a triumphal procession. Well, what is he talking about when he says that? It's kind of a unique phrase. 
Well, to first understand that, we actually do need to do a little pre-work of understanding who the us is in that passage. This is the context, right? We have to look at who he's talking about. Well, who Paul is talking about here primarily is himself and other believers that he is traveling with. Remember, Paul's writing this letter to a group of people in Corinth in the midst of traveling around in ministry. And many of the Corinthians, they, they didn't really believe that Paul maybe was who he said he was. His body of work didn't really prove that God was doing much through him. And in this section that we're going to be in for the next few weeks, this is kind of Paul's apologetic defense. Not saying sorry for it, but proving it with evidence that, no, I'm an apostle. God called me to this work. We're going to see this a lot in this series. But Paul here talks about being led in a triumphal procession. The Greek word for that is only shows up two times in the New Testament. It's this word buo. Kind of a fun word to say. Uh, but we see it here in 2 Corinthians, and we also see it in Colossians. And he, reading this word, the Corinthians would have had a picture come to mind. So if I say the word to you, parade, right now, right, you know what that means. That would have been what Paul was talking about here. A triumphal procession in the Roman world was when the Roman army would march through a city after they had conquered it. It was this massive victory parade. In a couple of days, a parade like this is going to go through one of two cities, Kansas City or San Francisco. Next year, it's going through Detroit, right? We know that. We know that, but not this year, unfortunately. But after these Roman, tri like these Roman triumphs, they would happen after generals and soldiers would return. And there's a lot of sources of ancient literature that piece together what these would have looked like. It's, it's fascinating. So much so that people are actually able to put together visual pictures, representations of what this would have looked like. We have one of them here. This is what a Roman triumph would have looked like through a city. Okay? This victory parade, it was a major event. Roman citizens, they would come out and they would celebrate Rome's victory. They'd be reminded of Rome's power over the world. And if you were present at one of these parades, you would see three different people here. The first person you would see is the most important person. That is the general. The general was high and lifted up in the middle of this parade. You could always see him for wherever you were. Because he was the person responsible for the victory. He had the glory and prestige of leading his army to this battle and this conquering of this new land. The second group of people were those that you see there on the left. These were the Roman soldiers who had survived and who had won the battle. With them, they'd be carrying all the spoils of war. They'd have the music and the theatrics and the food and incense that would be rising up. But there was a third group of people that would be marching. You can't actually see them in this rendition. But there's a third group of people in these triumphs, and they were the soldiers who had lost. The soldiers who had lost friends, family their land, they would be marching in chains. Oftentimes, they would be marching to their death because many of them would die. Some of them maybe became Roman citizens, but many of them were executed at the end of this. So this is the picture Paul calls to mind when he writes this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. Okay, we've got some questions we need to answer about this, right? Whose triumphal procession is it? Who is the victorious general? It's Jesus. 
That one seems pretty easy, right? We see it in the text. It's Christ's triumphal procession. That one seems pretty clear to us. But when Paul is talking about being led in the procession, who did he see himself as? Was he the victorious Roman soldier? Or was he the one in chains being led away? Those are vastly different people, aren't they? Who would you rather be? Well, as I studied this passage, and if you study this passage on your own this week, you're going to find commentators and theologians are all over the map (laughs) on who Paul could have been and what he's talking about here. But when you look at sources from the ancient world, whenever someone was being led in a triumphal procession, it was describing the person who had been conquered, not the victorious one. I actually think, my take, I think Paul is the one in chains in this procession. And I think that for two reasons. First, how Paul talked about himself in other New Testament letters that he wrote, but also Paul's experience with suffering as a Christian. A lot of places he went, he didn't see immediate physical victory. He was physically defeated in a lot of, lot of places. If you read Paul's other letters, letters like Romans, Colossians, Galatians, all these letters that he's writing to churches, you'll see that he uses words like soldier, slave, servant. But when referring to himself, one of his favorite self-titles was a slave of Christ Jesus. Over and over again, Paul frequently wrote about how his life was completely surrendered to God and his will for him. And how in this paradoxical way, That brought him incredible joy and purpose to be a slave. At one point of Paul's life, you can read this in the book of Acts early on, uh, you'll see that Paul was an enemy of Christianity, a staunch enemy. He persecuted the church. He tried again and again to stop followers of Jesus from sharing the gospel. So much so that when God saved him, God told other Christians to go see him. They're like, I'm not going to see him. There's no way he became a Christian. He's killing us. But he did. So Paul, when he became a Christian, he surrendered everything to Christ. So when he talks about a triumphal procession, I think he sees Christ's victory over sin, but also over himself. He conquered Paul, his soul. Paul became a follower of Jesus. The second reason I think that Paul sees himself this way is because of his extensive suffering he went through. In 2 Corinthians 12, where we're going to be in a few months, Paul's going to list out what he went through. And all this suffering he went through, it's not in spite of what God is doing. It was through what God was doing. Paul saw his life of suffering as a way of identifying with Christ in his sufferings. So here, Paul gives the first picture, a Roman triumph, a victory parade to help show who he is as a follower of Jesus and his impact on the world. But then in the second picture we're going to see, we're going to see how this impact actually goes out. We see it in the second half of the verse. It says this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life 
leading to life. In these few verses, you see a word show up a few times. It's that word aroma, right? We know what that is. It's a pleasing smell. And in the Old Testament, you see that word aroma a lot. Because after God had led his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, he had given his people the law. And the law was God's way of giving his people a way to live, to, to guard themselves against the false gods and ideologies of other nations and, and other things. So God gave them the law. This is how you live. This is how you love me. This is how you reflect who I am in the world. But sometimes, oftentimes, the people would break the law. And what they would have to do was that they would have to sacrifice an animal. The priest would do that. They would sacrifice an animal. But as that happened, the text says there was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We see this all over the place in the Old Testament. I'm just going to read one of them. This is Leviticus chapter 4, verse 31. It says, The priest is to burn the animal on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement on his, the sinner's behalf, and he will be forgiven. Forty times in the Old Testament, we see that phrase, pleasing aroma. So Paul, again, is calling to mind another picture of Old Testament sacrifice. And he uses this image to depict how his life, what it is, how his life is a pleasing aroma to God as he reflects Christ to the world. And that is true for every Christian in every place. How God spreads the knowledge of him is through his people. We represent Jesus in the world. We reflect him with our thoughts with our words, with our actions. This is the primary means, apart from his word, that God chooses to make himself known. It's through his people. All over the world, as Christians are gathering to worship, as they're living their lives, loving people, sharing the gospel, worshiping together, what we are doing is spreading the knowledge of God. And we actually see here that there's three specific areas that that spreading of knowledge goes to. First and foremost, it is to God. You see what Paul writes? He says, for to God, we are the fragrance of Christ. Just like the sacrifices people made in the Old Testament, when they would submit to the law, when they would say, God, I have broken what you've said. I'm going to get this animal we're going to sacrifice. That was a pleasing aroma. You know why? Because they were submitting themselves to God's way for them. They were putting him first instead of themselves first. See, as Christians, this should be our primary aim, to live for the glory of God and not the glory of self. So many things get in the way of that, right? When we just live to please ourselves, other people, when we just look at the word of God and we say, you know what, God, I don't really care. I want to live my way. But when we choose to follow him, to trust him, to live by his word. We see it brings God joy and us joy. And when we live this way, we see that it spreads the knowledge of God. But the impact of that changes on different people. Look at what it says in verse 16. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. Here we see that word aroma again. As Paul traveled around, people reacted differently to his message. And how they reacted 
was based on the spiritual states of their hearts. Paul likened this to how two people can smell the same thing and have vastly different reactions. We understand this analogy, right? We have things we love the smell of that other people cannot stand. Maybe you live with that person, which is funny, right? And that makes for some fun conversations. But I remember growing up, um, my dad would eat a certain food that I could smell from anywhere in the house. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, because some of you may love it. And it's disgusting. Like, I don't like it. Um, But I'll give you a hint. It came in a jar. All right, that's all I'm going to give you. Um, All my dad had to do was open this jar. And I could smell it. It was just like, ooh. To him, he loved it. To me, death. Like, I, get, I had to get out of the house. Like, even today, if I smell this food, it brings back the memory of, I think I need to get out of this house for a while. Um, but what's really interesting about this smell is my dad can't convince me otherwise. He can't be like, oh, Tony, you know what? You got to try it with this. Or you got to eat it this way. I'm like, doesn't matter what my dad tells me. None of it's going to matter. Still gross. Okay? I'm not going to like the smell. This is the idea that Paul's getting at when he talks about the impact of our lives on people. Our lives are going to be an aroma to people, and we can't control their reaction. To some, we're going to be an aroma of death. But to others, we'll be an aroma of life. First, Paul says that to those who are perishing... Our lives as Christians may repel them. When we have conversations with people about what we believe, about why we go to church, about why we live certain ways that we do, why we spend or, or give or, or save money the way we do, how, why we serve, our life, it may not be attractive to them. And even more than that, they may find the things that we say as offensive or it may repel them. And we should not be surprised by this. Is at the core of the gospel message of Jesus is this idea that is offensive to the do-it-yourself individualistic culture that we live in. We can't do it on our own. We are a people in need of the grace of God all the time. All the time. And that we need God to intervene, to, to make a way for us back to him, that offends the person who can do it on their own. The message of the cross is that we are sinful people in need of the forgiveness that Jesus freely offers through his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. That message says that you can't save you. So God, in his grace, chose to come near and offer it to you freely. That message says that you exist to bring glory to God first, not yourself. And when our lives reflect this message with what we believe, what we say, how we live, some may find it offensive or unattractive, but that won't be true for everyone. To those who are being saved, Our lives will be attractive. 
our lives will be like an aroma leading to life. There's going to be people in your midst that will be attracted to the gospel by you. When they hear about what you believe, why you go to church, why you live the way you do, why you spend and save and give away your money like you do. And that is because God is working in those people. He is preparing their hearts to hear the gospel from you and other Christians. So when you interact with them and they see God at work in your life, they won't be repelled. They will be attracted. They will want that for themselves. I don't know about you, but for me, this is a very freeing passage. Because I love, I wish so badly I could control outcomes. Whether it's with my kids, or whether it's with our neighbors, family members, I wish I had the means to just choose Jesus for them. But I can't. We can't. God doesn't give us that power. But what he does instead is like a good father. He chooses to include his kids in his work of being known in the world. Our lives are the strategy God uses. But ultimately, the state of that person's heart, that's not for us to decide. I really like how Charles Spurgeon put it when he said this, we are accountable for our life and actions, but we are not responsible for other people and their decisions as long as we do what we are supposed to do. We are a precious fragrance of Christ, no matter how people respond to our message. As Paul wrote this, and as he was reflecting on his life as an aroma of Jesus, he actually, it leads him to ask a question. We see this question in the next verse, verse 16. He says this. Who is adequate for these things? For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many, but on the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. As Paul thought about this, he's just led to ask, like, who, who can do this? I mean, who's qualified? Who is adequate for this? During Paul's day, there were people that would travel around and they would teach the word of God for profit. Paul called them peddlers of the word of God. They, they were doing it not with genuine reasons. They were doing it to benefit themselves. And Paul here reminds him, hey, guys, Corinthians, that's not us. Okay, we are not peddling the word of God among you. We are ministering to you out of love for God and love for you. But over the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul answer this question, that question of who is adequate for these things. And here is the short answer. In our own strength, none of us are. None of us. But God, in his grace, empowers us by the Spirit to do the work that he calls us to. Next week, we're going to hit this verse, chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. It says this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. The beginning of this message, I said we were going to answer a question. How does God use us in his work of making himself known to the world? 
And as we think about these verses, these six verses today, we look at Paul's example, I think we see it pretty clearly. He uses our presence, our words, our actions, our very lives, knowing this, this passage helps us do one of the best things that we can do. If there's anything to think about of like, what now, okay? How should I live in light of these verses? It's this, be with people. Be with people. Get to know those that God has put in your midst. This was Paul's primary strategy. Go to where people are. Talk about Jesus. Live amongst them. Leave the results to God. That is what Paul did. Whether it's on the sideline at your child's practice, whether it's on your team at work, whether it's in your class at school, See, as we live our lives, too, we don't know. This is going to sound weird. We don't know how we're going to smell. <laughs> we don't know what our aroma is going to be like until we get close enough for people to actually smell us. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but that's kind of how it is. When some people interact with us, they won't want it. And that's okay. But to some, they're going to say, tell me more about that. I've always wondered about that. How has that changed your life? And we continue to be amongst them. But we are only accountable with how we choose to live and the decisions we make. We cannot own the decisions of other people. In another letter that Paul wrote, uh, he talked about how our lives, when we live this way, they're pleasing to God. We are, we're, we're as a, he kind of goes back to this idea of the aroma, and he talks about how our lives can be a living sacrifice. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he writes this, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In view of the mercies of God, let us live lives that are holy and pleasing to him. We do that like Paul did, surrendered to the will of God, living for the glory of God, more than the glory of self. We trust in the saving work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And as we do that, we trust that our lives of faith will have an impact on the world around us. This morning, we're actually going to take a simple step of faith and obedience. We're going to do what the Word says together as a church family when we take communion. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to get up, and we're going to, we're going to go around the room, and we're going to grab a little cup of juice and a cracker. And we're going to do this because Jesus told us to. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he sat down with his friends, and he had a meal. He broke bread. He took wine. And he says, guys, I want you to eat this, and I want you to drink this in remembrance of me. And he told them to do it that night, 
But then he said, continue to do this in remembrance of me. That's why we do it. There's no other reason other than Jesus tells us to. And if we are followers of him, we want to do what he tells us. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're going to remember Jesus. After I pray, you can feel free, you can get up. If you're a follower of Christ, you can go and get some of the elements, and you can come back, and you can take communion as we sing together. But if you're here today, and you haven't taken that step of following Jesus, do that today. Choose to trust him today. Put your faith in him Turn from your sins. What that looks like is just you saying, God, I am a sinner. And I'm choosing to turn from my sins and accept the gift of eternal life in you. And after you do that, get up. Go and take communion for the first time as a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do. I just thank you for the person in my life back when I was a teenager that showed up with his presence. He was just around. And God, in your grace, it was a Christian. It was a friend. It was someone whose life matched the words that he said, and they were your words. They were the words of truth of my need for you. God, as we think about this passage today and we think about our lives, Lord, I pray that we are, we're grateful that we can't determine the outcome. But God, we are instrumental. We are what you choose to make yourself known in the world. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you that as followers of Jesus, we are the aroma of Christ. Lord, we pray for those in our midst. We pray that that aroma would be pleasing, that it would lead to life, so that more and more people would come to saving knowledge and faith in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.